This is our Sparkler Monthly membership podcast for the month of September. Uh, I'm Lillian Diaz Prisbal. I'm the editor of the comics part of Sparkler Monthly, and I'm here with Jen Quick and with Rebecca Scoble. And we're here to talk about Offbeat and Jen Quick and comics and Gatesmith and kind of what's going on next with uh, Jen. And we're going to have some fun, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. So, Jen, you want to introduce yourself? Say hello. Sure. Hi. Uh, my name is Jen Quick, Jen Lee Quick, leader of Offbeat, uh, which had recently come to its thrilling conclusion. And uh, <laughs> after many, 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 many years in uh, production, and I'm now currently working on a, a new story called Gatesmith, which I'm very, very excited about. And I'm Rebecca Scoble. I am the one of the uh, Sparkler editors, uh, the head of the audio department, and longtime Jen Quick fan. So, uh, yeah, things might get a little bit gushy. I apologize in advance. <laughs> I think you've actually been a Jen Quick fan even longer than I've been a Jen Quick fan, because you knew about her before I even started at Tokyo Pop, and that was oh, kind of my man. first introduction. Soul so. Union, back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Ashcan comics. Yeah. <laughs> so Jen, do you want to talk Otakon. a little? Yeah, Otakon. Sorry, Jen. Sorry. Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit, Jen, about how you kind of ended up working at Tokyo Pop? Sort of how your how you found out of the company, what they were doing, how you got involved. Sure, sure. I went to school uh, for animation at uh, the School of Visual Arts in uh, Manhattan, and um, I was recently graduated when I had heard that Tokyo Pop was going to be doing a presentation at the school, and alumni were invited. So um, I went there just to kind of see what was going on, and they were reviewing portfolios and looking for submissions. So I showed them my work, and at the time, I was working on doing the artwork for once in a blue moon with Oni Press, but they said, once you're finished with that, send us a pitch and we would be very interested in possibly working uh, on a comic with you. So that's what I did. <laughs> Who did you talk to at that review? Was it Mark Panicha or was it Tell Jeremy? You the truth, I don't remember. <laughs> I apologize. I don't no, remember. Okay. Terrible Dude, it's, name it's the face. 10 years ago at this point. Yeah. So was Offbeat kind of the first thing you sent to Tokyo Pop then? Because that's certainly the first thing I saw from you. Actually, at the time, I was considering uh, sending them a pitch for a kind of a fantasy adventure comic, mm. um, but they had already had several submissions of fantasy comics, and mm-hmm. so they were specifically looking for something that was going to be um, more of a kind of a modern day story, and um, I did have a script for Offbeat created at the time, but I wasn't planning on doing anything with it. It was more of a personal challenge because I had never really written a story that took place in like current current times and stuff, so it was just something more to uh, give myself a little mental exercise, and I had shown it to some of my friends, and they had really liked it, um, so my uh, roommate at the time Becky Cloonan was like, you should really send them Offbeat. And I'm like, I don't know if like if they would really want Offbeat because I, I don't really know, you know, if that might be a little bit too too out there for them, you know. Um, they might be looking for something a little bit more mainstream or uh, something a little easier to market. Um, but when I had sent it to them, they they were pretty, uh, pretty excited about it and um, really didn't, uh, you know, give me any – 
revisions, so to speak, of. They were kind of just like, yeah, this is good. Let's go with it. <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of where I come into the story. So I was hired at Tokyo Pop basically right out of college in the spring of 2004. So I moved out to Los Angeles, and the editor who I was kind of reporting to, Jody Bryson, was one of the people who was doing a lot of kind of recruiting, particularly from SVA in those days. So like she was working with Becky at the same time and a couple other people kind of who I think you knew from school, Jen. And I think on probably my first or second day of the job when I had like no idea what was going on. I'm new to this city. I'm new to this company. She just kind of hands me this piece of paper that's print out of the offbeat pitch. So it's got four character designs at the top of our, our main cast and then a little story description of kind of what's going on in each of the characters. And I was instantly just blown away by it. So like the one thing that kind of stuck out at me that I really remember is that you described Tori as having like an uncanny awareness of time. And I was like, I'm not really sure what that means, but I'm intrigued by it. So like, I liked the fact that this was a real world story, but there were just these little kind of like things about the world that you were creating that were a little different. So like Tori doesn't, it's not really a superpower or anything, but it's just something that's kind of sets Tori apart from like the other kids around him. And then whatever's going on with the Gaia project has this kind of mystery that I found really appealing. Yeah. And at that point, we basically had a quota of like how many books we wanted to sign up by the end of the year. So we were really aggressively going after stuff. But it was still clear even then, like the stories that we all sort of internally were particularly excited about. And right from the get go, Offbeat was definitely one of them where it's like, this is something we can work with. It's going to fit really well with our audience. Tokyo Pop was a little shaky about kind of like the boys love angle at the time because it was going into 2004 election when basically like the vote on gay marriage kind of <laughs> shot down the Democratic chances across the country. It's like that was kind of a touchy issue politically for us. It's amazing how much has changed in 10 years. But like the way you were handling it just seemed so subtle and so sophisticated that re really quickly that became one of the projects that I definitely wanted to work on. And I didn't really get to. So like I didn't since I was the brand new editor and I was young, I was mostly working on license titles for a while and kind of secondary development with the original stuff. So I was helping out other editors with their work rather than doing stuff on my own. But then Jody left the company in early 2005 as Offbeat was kind of Offbeat Volume 1 was 75 percent done, maybe. Since I was the one who kind of knew the most about the project at that point, I was sort of a, a shoe-in to take over. So that's when Jen and I started working together directly. <laughs> so Yay! Nice. yay. <laughs> and then we went through all this craziness trying to, like, get the book together and, and fix all of these toning problems because nobody at Tokyo Pop knew what they were doing at that point when it came to digital files. So we're kind of reinventing the wheel on our end and poor Jen's just trying to get her work done. But yeah, I mean, it was a fun title to work on just because it never was one of the things that the company put a ton of energy behind. Like we all liked it. We all supported it. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Fruits Basket. It wasn't one of our sort of obvious top tier titles. And yet it's still it kind of turned into this sleeper hit where it got a Yalsa nod and it just got a lot of attention from librarians and kind of fans everywhere, which is just really heartening that that's it was a series that caught on in a way that I, I didn't surprise. I wasn't surprised by it because I, I really believed in it. But it was nice to see that vindicated, I guess. <laughs> but it's true. When people so. like Offbeat, they like it really hard. This is, not, <laughs> this is not a series for a lot of like casual fans. It's one where people are like, what's going to happen to Tori and Colin? I've been waiting for nine and a half years and yeah. they're still drawing yeah. fan art and stuff. So that's been yeah. really, really heartening. Uh, 
particularly on the uh, sparkler end, I think. I've talked about this on blog posts and whatnot, but when Becca and Leanne approached me in 2011 after Tokyo Pop shut down and we're like, hey, we're thinking about doing our own publishing company, right from the get-go, it was like, how can we get the rights to Offbeat from Tokyo Pop? Can we get Jen to finish it? <laughs> and I was like, even if we fail in this endeavor, I'm so excited that we get to try. Like, mm. I really want to try and make this happen. Yeah, that was top of our list from the very beginning. And we probably still would have had a publishing company if not for Offbeat, but it would have probably gone in a different direction. And I mean, you know, that's been really, really fun and brought a lot of cool people out of the woodwork saying, oh my gosh, you rescued a Tokyo Pop license? Oh man, you're finishing Offbeat? That's amazing. And, you know, we're, we're so glad that we get to do that. It's made a huge impact on my life. I went through all kinds of feelings. I don't even... <laughs> It's hard to even bring myself back mentally because so much, so many things have happened in such a short amount of time, um, since then. But I mean, I was, I was pretty devastated when I heard that Offbeat was going to be put on an indefinite hiatus. And I really felt like a lot of guilt that somehow, you know, if I had worked faster or if, um, it had been more popular or, you know, something, Something within my control could have, I could have been able to finish the story for the readers and I, fa I felt like I had let them down. I had failed. I was going through a lot of changes in my life and I was really kind of felt like offbeat being incomplete. It made me feel like maybe I wasn't cut out, you know, to do comics in, gen in general. Maybe the types of stories I had to tell weren't the types of stories that, you know, could sell. And so I really was kind of ready to throw in the towel. And I went several years without writing or drawing anything. And I just kind of was working retail. And I'm like, you know, what? I'm just gonna move on with my life and move on to a new chapter and pay my bills and, you know, focus on my family and friends and, and and other things and getting myself together mentally and not not pouring so much into um, comics. I basically wasn't going to do them anymore because anyone who does comics could tell you that that really does take over your life. It's really hard to have a life outside comics. Um, so in some ways, I felt like I was stunted as an individual. I was like, wow, you know, there's all these, all these things in my life that I've put on the back burner, you know. Um, and never really confronted, you know, as a full-fledged adult. And so I got a, you know, I got, <laughs> I, I have outstanding taxes. I didn't realize I need to pay, you know, you know, all these things uh, that I had just kept sweeping under the rug. And um, then when you guys had, well, actually the timing was really great because um, I had finally come to a place where I was ready to do comics again. Uh, I had gotten over the death of my father, which was really tough because he was um, a big supporter of my artwork. And I was gonna just do it as a hobby. I was just gonna, just gonna draw stuff for fun and just take it from there. And uh, as I started drawing again, it kind of surprised me how easily I got back into it and how just, I really just wanted to keep drawing. I was like, you know, it's, it's work, but it's just, it's work I find so fulfilling. I'm just addicted to it. So I was working retail. I was drawing my on, you know, my online comic for myself. And then Lillian approached me about finishing Offbeat and it almost was like, you know, it was surreal. I was like, can I even remember where I was? <laughs> <laughs> 
Can I even go back to remember where I was when I was working on Offbeat? Like I had built up this wall <laughs> around that part of my life, you know, where it's like because there was no resolution, it's like I couldn't even think about it for for so long without it just bringing me to tears that I had built up this whole mental wall around it that I, I had to start kind of tearing down again so I could get myself back into the mindset of the characters and what I wanted to accomplish with the story and everything. Um, but since I've been able to do that, I just feel like so much more complete. And it sounds like corny because it's just, you know, I mean, it's a it's a comic and it was made for entertainment. And um, actually, the, the amount of time I spent writing the original script just is so such a fraction of what it ended up becoming. I could never <laughs> guess that it would have taken over, you know, t- become such an impact on my life. But mm-hmm. in some ways, like finishing it was just so empowering that it's just improved my whole my whole perspective on life and and myself and um i've kind of gone back to <laughs> my arrogance of my youth where i'm like i can do anything <laughs> like you it might take 10 years to get there but i can do anything <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean i think that's one of like that was i mean it's a hard time at tokyo pop too like their offbeat was definitely one of my unfinished regrets as well like i had a lot of series that i was working on over my time there most of them i felt like we managed to get to a satisfactory conclusion and so the fact that we couldn't do that for offbeat and it was a story that i love so much and i thought that you know you were so talented you know just having the opportunity on my end to kind of sort of fulfill that stage of my editorial career was really exciting as well it's funny that you were talking about the script though and and sort of getting back in the mindset because like aside from i think the epilogue i feel like not that much really changed from how you originally described it to me for vol i mean we'd we'd started work on volume three before everything kind of fell apart at tokyo pop so like even while we were redoing volume three for sparkler you know there were a lot of thumbnails and a lot of pages that you'd at least done some work on back in Jesus, like 2007. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting that like, even though I'm sure it was really difficult to kind of get yourself back to that place at the same time, like once you did, it seems like it's still the same story you always wanted to tell. It didn't really change that much from sort of your initial envisioning of it. I don't know, though, but like, I don't think I ever saw a full script for like the second half of the book. So maybe maybe you feel like things changed there more than I saw them happening. Discuss. (laughs) Discuss. <laughs> um, things did sort of change from my original script, because uh, the original script was only supposed to be two books, and then I felt like it was really kind of cramming too much into, even though, I mean, well, let's face it, there's not that much that happens in the story. It's a, it's a pretty slow-paced story. Um, it's all about the but, feelings. There's yeah, lots of feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Three volumes of feelings. <laughs> well, I, I had hoped that that had come across, too, but um, sometimes I, I would look and reread some of the stuff I was doing, and I, I would just start to second guess myself and I think that's what happens when you have too much time on your hands and yeah. you have too much time in between you know I guess it gives you too much time to almost overwork it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And so I think that's what kind of had happened with me when I wrote the original script it was back in like I think 2002 I was still in college mm. So it had been a couple of years since I had written it and graduated from college and a lot of things had changed in my life. Um, so I was starting to, to think of myself as being more mature than where I was in college. And um, so I, I wanted to kind of rework the ending so it wasn't quite so melodramatic in my mind, I guess. And then um, fast forward and then uh, I ended up kind of reverting back to my original script Still a little less corny, I guess a little less cheesy, a little less, yeah, a little less cheesy, but mm, I don't know. I guess in some ways I 
I kind of had a little bit more confidence in what I was originally planning on doing when I wrote. Because the original script, I really, it didn't take me that long to write. I mean, I wrote it in like, I want to say like a week or something like that. I think that I might have thought that it was, you know, just a little bit too, not well thought out enough. And then going back and trying to rethink it out and then deciding that, no, no, I think I would, that was, that's, you know, my original intention. I should just stick to that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what fits best instead of trying to trying to pull it or push it in a, in a different direction or make it to be more than what it was originally meant to be. So I think when we were initially getting back into things again, you were talking about how like you thought about maybe doing, I forget if it was like a much happier ending or an even sort of more ambiguous ending. And then we kind of settled on or you settled on <laughs> sort of what we went for. And then like, was the epilogue originally part of the plan or was that something that kind of came? No, along no, the epilogue wasn't wasn't originally part of the plan. The original script ended basically with Tori just <laughs> oh, being like, bye. My favorite line of feeling and uh, then every beat is painful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and um I had a dream uh sometime after things fell through with Tokyo Pop. I had a dream where Tori was dreaming about meeting Colin again in my dream and that's kind of where I came up with the idea for the epilogue. Although the dream itself was a little bit more depressing, I think the the epilogue is a little bit more hopeful because um the reader can really look at the epilogue and be like, "Oh, this is what happens." Uh okay. versus in the actual dream that I had, I I remember parts of it vividly. I remember Tori waking up in my dream and like staring at a ceiling fan or something like that. <laughs> oh um, no. So it was very obviously a dream in my dream that yeah. he was you know, dreaming of meeting up with Colin, but he had moved on with his life and was like living on his own and doing his own thing. And yeah. Oh, so you're just, your, your subconscious wants to make us all cry <laughs> is what it comes down <laughs> to. I think, I think it's just a part of me just, um, you know, I, I, I guess I, I haven't personally experienced like the whole love at first sight or the, the idea of like having a first love that pans out, um, into, you know, being a lifelong love wasn't something that I had in my own experience or have known other people to experience. So I know that like people feel very strongly um, about their early relationships when they're in the middle of them. You know, all that high school drama is very <laughs> uh, important to you and you have such strong feelings about it. But then like in retrospect, you know, you kind of grow out of it and you realize that there's other things, you know, that contribute to a, to a healthy relationship, to a, a long-term relationship other than just powerful feelings. Um, so I think that was kind of like a lesson that I wanted to, I guess, share an offbeat because I just felt like there was a lot of romance stories out there that kind of just, I don't know, I, I guess encourage that kind of romantic idea that, that people are meeting their significant, you know, their long-term significant others in high school mm-hmm. versus I found out to be kind of the opposite of what's the usual reality. So I wanted uh, Tori to kind of have those feelings and to be able to get over those well not I guess I guess you don't really see the getting over those feelings but the idea that that's something that a lot of people have to have to go through but then I guess in I changed my stance on it on being able to give the reader a happy ending if they wanted to have that you know that sense of romantic fulfillment <laughs> <laughs> does that make any sense like I I realized that I 
that's how I feel about the genre and how I feel about relationships mm-hmm. not being really properly mirrored in, in fiction. But then at the same time, I, I understand like people's need for like fantasy and fulfillment. And I wanted to give them that option if they wanted to you know, if they wanted a more happy ending. I mean, I like that. I really, so like one of the things that I find most romantic, both in fiction and in reality is the idea of two characters kind of growing together. And so you get a little bit of that in the story of offbeat itself in this sort of accelerated way, because Tori obviously grows up a lot throughout the three volumes in kind of his own weird Tori way. But I also like the idea of them coming back later at a sort of different point in their lives where they've had time to kind of, experience new things and, and I think Tori in particular because he's got a single mom and isn't doesn't have like a super privileged life but he's he's relatively sheltered so I think seeing how Tori kind of grows over the next five or six years of his life I think would be really interesting and uh, how that would affect their relationship if they met again that kid would have a hard time with the real world. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a good, like, so many of us, like, geeks who, who spend their high school years reading comics and daydreaming, like, you know, ex- experiencing kind of what, I don't know, dealing with stuff on a day-to-day basis is like is, is good experience. Even though, you know, he's really a pretty responsible kid, all things to, oh, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm said, just trying, so. I just, you know, you imagine, like, Tori with his crappy minimum wage job having to listen to a boss who's like way less intelligent than he is or I mean obviously navigating that kind of transition from high school to college to work or whatever is hard for pretty much everybody but you know he's a he's a little mouthy kid who does exactly what he wants to yeah yeah. (laughs) so I think a lot of there's a lot you can imagine what he would go through and it would be pretty entertaining so that, that kind of segues really nicely into one of the questions that we got um um, from Wonder1440 on Tumblr, who is like Offbeat's number one <laughs> fan. I love her. Um, she actually asked a couple of questions, but the one that I thought was relevant was, we've talked a little bit about one of the later reward tiers for our membership drive right now is a Offbeat audio drama and what the potential new material that the audio drama would cover. Would it be post volume three in the timeline or how we would handle that? Like, I don't want to talk too specifically about that because I don't think we have any specific plans. But for me, I'm not even sure who's going to write the audio drama. But like almost as soon as Offbeat finished, I was like, I I write fanfic like once every three or four years. (laughs) And I have a fanfic sort of plot bunny that's like from the perspective of Tori's college roommate and trying to figure out like, what's up with this kid who kind of seems really obsessed and seems really kind of driven in certain ways, um, but is a little bit kind of mysterious in his own right. So like kind of a little bit of a role reversal from the way we've seen Tori looking at Colin would be someone looking at Tori in kind of the same way. I don't know if I will ever write that or if anyone would ever see it other than Jen and the Sparkler staff. <laughs> oh, you would definitely have to show me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we definitely would want to see that. There, there may or may not be a little bit of Tori making out with his college roommate. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll see. So that that's my thought of like what I would like to see. I'm actually kind of leaning a little bit more towards um, a side story of an event that um, I ended up omitting from the final version that was supposed to take place in book three, and I decided to delete the scene mm-hmm. um, because I I didn't really feel like there was enough room for it. Just because I. And I would love to hear Tori and Colin both voice acted. So. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I think no matter what ends up happening, even if Colin was not in it, we would have to find a way to put Colin in it in some kind of flashback or... Yeah. His voice needs to be yeah. redeeped because I was horrified <laughs> by Tokyo <laughs> Pop's audio version of his voice. I mean, I was really horrified by it because yeah, it I don't even remember that so one. completely not what, what I envisioned for his voice. <laughs> Boy, was that a fiasco. I think the worst is probably Bizengast, actually, but, but I remember Offbeat not being great either. So well, the other voices weren't that bad. It was yeah. it was just Colin. I couldn't get over that voice. It kind of. I, I <laughs> it's funny how like stuff like that really sticks with you too. I mean, it's it's fun. I've listened to a lot of anime over the years, and there's certain series where it's just sometimes like dub versus original cast works really well for me, and sometimes there's a voice or two that just sticks out as being horribly wrong. Yeah. So it's it's oh. funny how we internalize that kind of thing. A lot of Western voice actors, at least so far, and definitely not all of them, but just many, have trouble with that kind of shoujo quiet guy. And mm. and also just when I've been with male voice actors and had to try to get them to sound vulnerable, that mm. can be a real, real struggle, even for really talented actors. Like, like you know, there's only a handful, like who I, I know could actually do that. But part of it is when you're casting, you kind of have to know that and go into this saying, okay, well, I need this guy to sound weak or I need him to cry okay. or I need him to, okay. to sound like a quiet, shy person or, you know, whatever, whatever one of those kind of subtle emotions you're going for. And you mm-hmm. write the audition dialogue with that in mind and then you can kind of see who can hack it and who can't. Mm-hmm. At least that's been sort of my experience so far. And that really makes a lot of sense. Like a lot of the best voice actors I know in the industry, like in the industry here, the people who can do like, like either like spunky boy character or like the heroic dude. Mm. So, and like they're really good at those parts or even like the goofy heroic dude. But yeah, that vulnerability and being able to capture that I think is really difficult. Yeah. So I hadn't thought about that so explicitly. <laughs> yeah. One of the many problems about the Tokyo Pop audio dramas is that not even the editors knew that those were happening. So nobody had any feedback on those <laughs> until yeah. it was like a done deal. And we were like, well. I don't think I heard about it until somebody sent me a message being like, what's up with this? <laughs> what's up with this? And I was yep. like, I have no idea what's up with yep. this. That's, that's pretty but much the first time we heard, heard about it. It was like, already posted on like the Tokyo Pop site and stuff. And I was like, yep. what? Yep. <laughs> yes. So whatever happens, we can guarantee that both the script and the actors are going to be okayed by Jen. Just to yeah. like Yay. put everybody's yeah. mind at ease. We've already discussed this, and it's just like we are not yeah. like Jen is involved in this whole process the whole time. Yeah. But it's just, yeah. just not even a question. Make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I am really I, looking I forward to that. I do love the idea of having uh having my character's voice acted. That that's mm-hmm. that is somewhat of a pipe dream of mine. So <laughs> I really hope it does happen. And and you know so that- not, not to throw Sorry, out too many things, but casting is a big part of this process. Once you have a cast for something, mm-hmm. putting together a script and doing something with that cast, like, doesn't, you know, I mean, editing is its own horrible monster, but actually getting the recording and stuff once you already know who you have to call is surprisingly easy. Mm-hmm. Like, comparatively. So, uh, yeah, I want to cast Tori and Colin is what it comes down to. So we can have those guys on call. And if you say, hmm, I think Tori and Colin need to profess their undying love for each other, we can just make this happen. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really good insight into just, like, how the uh, the audio process works. Because I think that's the, one of the parts of Sparkler that's still really a mystery to people is, like, what goes on in your department. So I think we need to get you to talk about that more on our next, like, we'll do that later. We we were talking to Jen. I'm sorry. I get, I get carried away when I talk about audio. Uh, that's great. But it's, it's, um, basically whatever we do is going to be awesome. We just don't have the details finalized right now and it's going to be great. 
It's going to be awesome. <laughs> that kind of segues in an interesting way to Wonder 1440's other question, which is about Terrabrand. Was that ever intended to be voiced? So that was a comic game that Jen was working on around 2006. There were character designs. They were up on DeviantArt. What were sort of the plans with that back in the day? Because that's games are something that's relevant to the general sparkler community, I think, <laughs> and sort of our long-term plans. So it, it ties in nicely. Well, I, I love um, I love games. That's kind of one of the things that I would have liked to get into if I was more uh, tech savvy. I thought I thought that visual novels were a really cool cool medium um, that I wanted to kind of see more more stuff available for people who don't speak Jap or speak or read Japanese. Mm-hmm. And um, I had kind of stumbled across a couple different programs, and I thought, huh, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can, maybe it's something like comics I can do by myself. I can do it all, uh, have that creator control over and stuff. And so I kind of taught myself how to use, um, Ren, Renpai. Yeah, um, Renpai. Renpai, one of the programs. And Terra Brand was actually a comic that I, based on like a really short comic, um, that I had just dabbled in when I was in, college I think and then I had kind of tried to turn it into like this little tabletop game or whatever and then I thought oh it'll be perfect for like a visual novel and so I started working on it and I had every intention of just kind of casually finishing it as a hobby and I got kind of overwhelmed with uh, with work and doing other things that it kind of fell through and it was one of those things that I also realized like kind of going into like the I forget how far along I was in the second Second chapter, third chapter. It was just a lot of work. <laughs> I'm like, I'm moving at a snail's pace. Um, I don't have any, you know, editorial help. So I was having people who are kind of test playing it for me, uh, trying to find like spelling errors and, you know, little bugs and stuff. But going back and trying to correct the, the coding and script and everything was just... It was just too frustrating for me that I, I, I kind of just had to throw in the towel. But at one point, I was looking to try to finish it and trying to see if I could get some help. Um, and I had some people volunteering um, to do voice voices for it, which I thought would have been really cool. But it was one of those things where I just I couldn't really manage trying to get a team together to work on it as well as working on my other stuff. So it just got pushed back to the back burner until I was kind of like, oh, well, that was an interesting experiment, but I don't think I'm going to be able to, <laughs> to finish it. You know, in fact, at this point, I think if I were to, to work on it again, I'd want to re rewrite it, re kind of rework everything about it. And I'd want to be able to be part of a team because I, I just think visual novels are a little bit too much work to handle on my own. Um, mm-hmm. Comics I can I can manage, but Visual novels is just too many different elements to try to to try to learn and stay on top of that it's it's overwhelming for one person at least I found it to be uh, you need too many different skill sets and I can do like the writing and the artwork um, but can't do the voices can't do the music <laughs> can't do the uh, you know can't do the well tried to do the coding but just found it was way too stressful trying to juggle it all so mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, did, did that answer the question? Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. so. I was just curious, kind of, because, like, I remember that that was happening, but I don't think I ever really knew that much about it. Yeah, no, I played through, like, you had a little demo up of it, didn't you? Like, mm-hmm. yep. yeah, I played through the demo way back in the day, and uh, it looked really cool, and I, I totally agree with you that visual novels are such an exciting 
sort of art form. Uh, and it's something that, you know, we would really like to go into, but it's sort of, you do, you need a team and you need a really dedicated team and it takes a ton of time and effort and skills of a bunch of people to really make it happen. So I can see why going at it by yourself ended up being really difficult. So let's talk a little bit about Gatesmith then. So kind yeah. of moving moving forward into present day. So Wonder1440 <laughs> asked her final question, which is, uh, will Gatesmith be in print eventually? And I guess I get to answer that one. Hopefully, yes. Uh, our goal with all Sparkler series is to do a print edition. It really depends on audience demand and whether we think that that's a good financial investment for us. But all of our files are basically designed to be print ready. So that's something we'd really like to do. So you can line it up next to Offbeat on your shelf one day. <laughs> so... Uh, but Gatesmith is also something that you and I talked about back in the Tokyo Pop days, because at least while we were starting to work on Offbeat 3, we were talking a little bit about what might be up next for you. So I remember at that point, were you living in Arizona for a while? I was. Uh-huh. Okay. And like, we definitely talked a lot because I've, I've have relatives in Arizona, now New Mexico. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in the Southwest. Like you and I are both very inspired by that landscape and by the cultures there. So that was something that I was excited about even from the early days. So how has Gatesmith changed in the interceding years or has it? <laughs> oh my gosh, Gatesmith has changed a lot. <laughs> I don't even really quite remember what I was originally intending it to be. I think the only thing it has in common with my original concept is that it takes place in the desert and, <laughs> and there's, there's some supernatural yeah. elements to it. And that's pretty much the only thing it has in common with my original mm-hmm. conception. I, I just really wanted to make a story that takes takes place in the desert. <laughs> I just love the love the landscape. Really fell in love with it when I was living in Arizona. I mean, it's fun to see you do that because, like, one of the things I really I always loved about Offbeat was your urban landscapes and how kind of lived in and, and real they felt to me. And so it's fun to kind of see you translate that skill set to a completely different landscape, but that still feels really lived in and and real. So, like, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I guess chapter four when we finally get to town. So I think that'll be interesting to see. Spoiler. spoiler. <laughs> I don't think that's much of a spoiler. No, no, it's not. <laughs> and then everybody dies. That's a spoiler. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, actually. So hopefully, you know, by the time that, that this podcast goes up, both uh, chapters one and two are going to be free to read on the website. So. Hopefully everyone will have read those at that point and be excited about some really cool stuff that starts to happen at the end of chapter two. Um, yeah, Jen and I totally a little conversation last week where I was like, so for the next chapter, chapter three, like, is every gonna, everybody gonna be okay, more or less? <laughs> we had to kind of walk through, like, <laughs> I don't know, the potential, potential death count. So <laughs> it, it's a really different series from Offbeat. I'm excited. <laughs> I think just the word death count makes it pretty clear it's a very different yeah. series from all <laughs> But Jen, uh, you've always really been great at world building. And I mean, this is something that people who just know Offbeat might not realize because although, you know, obviously one of the things we all like about Offbeat is how authentically New York it feels and how how that neighborhood feels like a place people actually live. It is sort of the real world when a lot of your other work has been really 
serious fantasy or, you know, things that have a lot of magic and, and these sort of uh, supernatural systems to them. And uh, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, particularly since Gatesmith is sort of similar in that it's it's not like, oh, well, I'm a King Arthur stand-in and, uh, you know, it's got a really interesting sort of landscape there. Yeah, your fantasy's never really been like that sort of medieval European spin-off type stuff. It's always been much more unique than that. So, and, and very varied. I mean, all of the stuff you've done over the years, each series, you know, it's distinctively gen quick, but they all look different. The character designs are different. The fashion's different. So I don't know. Where does that come from? I, I think it's because I have a lot of interest in, um, documentaries. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, what I enjoy, I guess my, uh, my entertainment. I don't actually get around to reading a lot of comics or, um, uh, reading a lot of fantasy or watching a lot of, um, a lot of fantasy, uh, stories even though i i love them um and uh i used to read a lot of them when i was um in middle school in particular uh in high school i was really absorbing it absorbing a lot of that stuff Uh um but most of my adult life i would say i've been enjoying just a lot of different types of documentaries uh animal documentaries um historical documentaries loved cosmos um (laughs) the new cosmos uh yeah so i think that's that's kind of my um my my sources of entertainment and i it probably a little bit reflected in my work uh is that you know those are the types of things i like to think about um i like to i like to read and um uh watch shows about social commentary or you know uh different different social issues uh learn about other cultures and uh, I like to think about how the earth works. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think when you come from, uh, you know, when you come from that kind of mindset, then it seems natural when you're building a fantasy world to kind of flesh it out in the same way. Hmm. Versus like, I think maybe if I had only been interested in fantasy, then it's easy to kind of just fall into archetypes and take yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. things for granted. No, that really makes a lot of sense. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's... A lot of what I reblog on the the Sparkler Tumblr is kind of reminders to use real world references for things and to kind of do your research. So that's, that's a really great way of reinforcing that. You know, if you live too much in other people's fantasy worlds, I think it makes it difficult to kind of develop your own. So having that sort of broad interest and and broad references that you're pulling from that really explains a lot about how you're able to kind of create such intricate and and original worlds. Well, it's definitely my, I feel guilty about it <laughs> because I draw comics, but I don't really read nearly enough comics anymore. Um, I used to read <laughs> a lot of manga when I was um, in high school and college, but I don't really read that many comics anymore, I have to admit. Um, but in some ways, I don't feel guilty about it because I think it's important to, you know, keep your mind open to other okay. forms of entertainment and um, just get your inspiration from different sources than mm-hmm. just what industry you happen to be in. Cause that's the way you can kind of bring your own spin on things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that like, there's a lot of really great stuff out there these days and it's just, I'm just a media vacuum. Like I, I consume things somewhat indifferently, like whether it's comics or TV or movies or whatever. So I feel like that's where I kind of come in as an editor is you've got the idea and I can say this is how I think it fits in the context of what else is out there right now. So when we talk about doing a comic in the Southwest, 
I'm trying to pay attention to sort of other stories out there right now that have a similar setting to see what they're doing and how we can do things differently um, and how we sort of fit in. But like, that's my job. And your job is to just write something good. So, <laughs> I um, really appreciate that because I, uh, I, I like hearing, you know, about things that you guys are, are watching or reading and getting the summaries from you guys as well from like my husband and stuff. He, yeah. Uh, usually keeps me up to date on some of like the current like uh, television series and dramas and things because I just don't have time for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got a baby too, so we haven't even talked about this at all. But oh like, my I gosh. think one of the most impressive things about the fact that we even finished Offbeat Volume Three this year is the fact that you had like maybe a chapter done and then suddenly you had an infant. So the fact that you were juggling 20 to 30 comics pages a month plus a baby who had a kind of unpredictable sleep schedule for a long time, it's just extra impressive. I mean, you've always been one of the artists who I work with who's just, you're so fast. Like when, you, when you're working, you just work so quickly, which is great. So good work, Jen. But congrats on having a really adorable baby too. Thank you. Jen and I have little Skype meetings once a week just to kind of check in on how things are doing. And so like... I get all these little baby updates and photographs and little videos. So I get to watch Charlie's progress as he's getting bigger from he is so cute. half a country away. <laughs> is that more difficult than you expected? Is it about as difficult as you expected? So, I mean, not, not sort of like the general baby thing, but like balancing sort of the work life. Um, uh, it's definitely super duper hard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, you know, like parents will tell you how hard it is, but there's no way of knowing how hard it is until you're actually doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, I, I knew it would be hard, but I didn't know how hard it would be until I experienced it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So it's been a challenge, but at the same time, two very you know, I, I think there's this thing about like how hard something is makes it all the more rewarding. So mm. parenting, very hard, very rewarding. Comics, mm-hmm. very hard, very rewarding. So it's kind of like juggling the two <laughs> very hard, very rewarding things has made my life very hard, but very rewarding. <laughs> I don't, I don't really have time for any, uh, for any leisurely me time anymore. I guess that's one of the things that I really took for granted before mm-hmm. I, uh, mm-hmm. before I had a baby. Which is uh, why you rely days. on other people to, to read comics and watch movies for you and then tell right. you. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Cause I live alone with my cat, so I have a lot of time to watch stuff. <laughs> yep. It's, um, pretty much every, every moment of my waking day is either baby or work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, if I didn't do, if I didn't have work that I loved doing, I don't think I'd be able to do it. Mm-hmm. If I didn't love my son <laughs> mm-hmm. as much as I do, I don't think I could do it. Um, the fact that I love, you know, drawing comics and telling my stories and that I love my son tremendously um, is what makes it, the work all worthwhile. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that's kind of what gets me through it. I feel very fortunate that I'm, that I'm able to have the awesome baby that I have and be able to write my own stories is a huge deal. I don't think I could work on another person's story, kind of like I did with um, Once in a Blue Moon. That was a very, mm-hmm. uh, I learned a lot from that experience. Um, but one of the biggest things I learned from it is that I don't really enjoy drawing other people's comics. It, mm-hmm. It's just, it's not my thing. I have to be able to write my own story. To I have to feel that passionately about mm-hmm. it to kind of get myself through the actual labor of pages because mm-hmm. it's it's tough, like, uh, doing comics on the schedule that we're doing it because, 
you know, you can't really have sick days. You can't really have like uninspired days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to kind of just like keep plow, being able to plow through it without uh, sacrificing the quality of it. And it requires a lot of concentration. I basically have like about five and a half hours, five days a week to work on comics um, cuz I can't work on them when my baby's around. So that's when he's be- with when he's at his grandma's and I can focus on work and during those that time the first week of the month is kind of layouts, scripts, all the prep work and then two weeks for doing the actual penciling and inking and then the last week for doing the scanning and cleanup and toning. And giving uh, Lillian time to do the lettering. Thank you so much. <laughs> so it, it's a pretty tight schedule. Um, and during that, uh, you know, that five and a half hours that I have a day, I my pencil has to be kind of smoking. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's tough to be able to turn turn it on and off like that. Um, but I think maybe also my break from comics um, when I took two and a half, three years off from drawing also kind of kind of taught me a lesson, I guess, into how badly you want something. Mm. Um, how badly do I want to be able to do these comics and not be doing retail <laughs> again? <laughs> so that's always a good good motivator to remember remember that part of my life. <laughs> we had one other question that I think is is relevant. It's going back to kind of offbeat as a story, which is, did Colin ever try to, quote unquote, collaborate with anyone else before meeting Tori? Or was Tori sort of the first person he felt that connection with? Silence. That, that is a really interesting question. I have to kind of think about that for a moment. My first reaction was to be no. And then I thought about it a little bit more, and I would still say no. <laughs> he did have some relationships before Tori, but mm, I would say it was his first his first time of reaching out. Mm. He was actually the one who kind of made that proposition. So mm-hmm. it was it would it would be a first, and probably only actually. You think he just gets sucked back into work after that? I guess we don't need to discuss that. Maybe that's a spoiler. <laughs> well, let well it's not kind of- really a spoiler. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I left it, I left, um, my story a little bit open ended and I like to do this with most, most of my stories because I have different scenarios that play out in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard for me to commit to one scenario. So I kind of had kind of left some ambiguity in one of my other works in, uh, which is Quarry as well mm-hmm. and had, um, somebody complained to me about it, uh, mm-hmm. saying, you know, well, what, what exactly happened in this, in these pages? You didn't mm-hmm. make it clear what happened. And I said, yeah, I don't, I didn't want to commit to saying this specific action definitely happened because I have different scenarios that played out in my mind. And, um, I didn't, you know, I, I kind of want the reader to be able to, make their own decision as to what exact events, you know, to fill it, to be able to fill in some of the details um, themselves because uh, I'm a little bit, <laughs> I, I guess I'm a little wishy-washy in that regard. <laughs> certain, certain details I don't like to commit to because I've played them out in different ways in my mind. Um, and I, I have fun doing that. So I figured the reader too mm-hmm. would also be able to have fun uh, being yeah, able I mean- to play out different scenarios in their minds. I think endings are one of the hardest things to do in any story, but particularly something that's serialized and has been going on for a long time. I personally also really like endings that have a little bit of ambiguity or, or a sense that like the characters live on after the story's done is maybe a better way to think about it. And sometimes endings, either they happen too quickly or they're a little too pat. And I feel like that kind of 
I don't want to say sucks the life out of the story, but it just, it makes it seem less like it has its own energy in some ways. You know, I, I always liked the idea that we'd end offbeat with a little bit of ambiguity. Well, and mm. I think there's different types of stories too. Like either mm-hmm. you have those certain stories that you can tell that the most important thing with those stories, the events that are taking place and the characters are kind of just like vessels to helping those events take place. And then my stories tend to be more character centric where the the events that are taking place are kind of more just there to build the characters and they're kind of just they kind of take i guess second second priority Uh they're more like the vessels to like building the characters up and getting to reveal parts of their personality or their growth and the the events themselves are kind of just incidental Uh so i think in from that approach it makes more sense to me to leave it to make the events a little bit Mm-hmm. Up to interpretation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like if somebody can read my story and feel they know the characters well enough to make up their own scenario as to what happened, mm-hmm. then I feel very successful in that. I think that's a really good place to leave off since we've been talking, <laughs> I think, for over an hour now. So, <laughs> Becca, do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? Or, or Jen, did you have any? I feel like we've covered a lot of stuff. Yeah, I could, I could talk about Jen's work for a long time, but I don't think anyone wants to hear that. <laughs> See, the, the best thing to do is just let Jen talk, because brilliant things come out of her mouth. So, thank you for talking with us today. Oh my gosh, you're so... <laughs> you flatter me so much. Sorry. I was so scared, like, when, no. about finishing Offbeat that it was not going to live up to everybody's expectations. I'm like, eh. Well, you, you, basically, I spent the next week, like, in a daze thinking about thinking about these characters so i mean if you're trying to get people to care about your characters you succeeded and you know i mean i think that like it's pretty clear from uh you know lillian's hypothetical fan fiction and my little ramblings that we all kind of have ideas about what's going to happen to these people eventually you know Uh and and where they're going to end up and what they're going to end up doing and and you know they do sort of have a life of their own and you can kind of see the trajectory of of where they are past the story so good job (laughs) Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And um, thank you so much, Chromatic, uh, for giving me the opportunity to work with you guys because it's just been, it's been awesome. It is our intense pleasure to be able to do that. I think that's it. So look forward to Chapter 3 of Gatesmith coming in October. And uh, the story will continue on after that, probably in December. I think we're going to give Jen a little bit of a break in between to get some other comics in there. But uh, let her let her get ahead of things a bit and spend some more quality time with her baby. <laughs> so, but we'll we'll keep the pace quick and steady from here on out. Thanks, you guys, for you know listening to us, and uh, thanks for all thanks your support. So much. Sparkler, enjoy. Bye. Bye. Bye.